Thank you, Mariposa. This is round two because we we talked for three hours. (laughs) So, (laughs) and the thing is, is we do this regularly. Yes, but yeah. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I wanted to jump in quickly, and actually, it is as per request. You're going to listen to a very dear friend of mine, Mariposa, and I talk about how she has used her own exploration into faith and spirituality and just simply being in New Orleans, one of the most magical cities in the whole world, to discover and create her own, I don't want to say dream job because we're not quite there yet, but it's just been a really, I mean, it's been a really wild couple of years for all of us. And I think it's fascinating how Mariposa has really turned her experience around and we don't get into all of it, like, you know, finding the dead body or (laughs) the uh, civil rights movements in Detroit, but her experience is varied and I think incredibly valuable. So I, I hope that you enjoy this conversation between two people to just very, very good friends. One thing that uh, is happening, so we've recorded this conversation twice. The first time it was a three-hour conversation, and quite honestly, I just didn't have the balls to edit that. So we re-recorded. On the day that we recorded originally, it was Super Sunday, which is a thing in New Orleans. I'll let Mary Post get into that. When we record for the second time, it is Second Line Sundays, which is a whole series of Sundays. And Mariposa realized after this was published that she had been using uh, the wrong the wrong name. So that's why I'm jumping in. I'm correcting on her behalf. And that's all I got to say. So I hope you enjoy it. And the reason I've got Mariposa here is, and I'm okay, actually, I haven't sprung this one on you yet. I'm thinking about calling like the interview series, the Relatables interview series. Is that the worst name ever? Ooh. I just like the relatable. Okay, cool. Who I'd like to be talking to and speaking with are people who are towing the line. They are juggling spirituality and real life, work mm-hmm. and ethereal. You know, they've got one foot firmly planted in this 3D world and then one foot tripping the light. Fantastic. <laughs> Not to discriminate against energy workers or yoga teachers. I mean, actually, you technically are a yoga teacher. Um, yes, techni- technically. <laughs> I have to be a part of that crowd, but I get it. Well, no, it can. it's a fantastic crowd. I just, I think it's a lot easier to really live like, I mean, I don't know. It's not necessarily easier being fully committed to your spiritual, personal development practice. Again, whatever kind of words mm-hmm. you want to use for it. It's, it's one thing when that is quite literally your job. It's another, you have a job or, you know, potentially your job is full-time mother and partner or something that is just not very open to (laughs) taking a minute to go meditate or potentially have a ceremony or, you know, pull cards to figure out what you're going to do, what you're going to do next. I'm so resistant to structure and authority and being like, this is what I have to do or too much structure in my day that like, I think if I was like a medium or a card puller or like an energy worker, I would not be as spiritual and I would probably fall away from it, come back to it and fall away from it over and over again because I would start to resent like having to do this, to have clients, to make money. That sort of thing is the type of thing that would really kind of knock me off my spirituality. So it's like, it's better that I'm not in that world. So that's interesting. 
Like for me, like people can do it and love it. But for me, I just be like, oh, I have to do this. And I'm meditating. I didn't go to bed last night at the right time or like didn't eat the right things. And now I'm not going like, to give the best reading I could. And then I would like be hard on my, yeah, it would just be like this whole different cycle. But it's, since it's just for me, that makes it a lot easier. Well, no, not, I mean, firstly, that makes perfect sense. But secondly, I think that's going to be very relatable <laughs> to people. <laughs> and it's nothing against people that do that because I think they're able to do it because that fits their life and personality. Do you know what I mean? I wish I could be that, I, but I've, after trying for many years, I have come to accept I, that is not how it's going to show up for me. You just hit on a really interesting point as well, is that so often we are, and I mean, especially our stance on this, we're appropriating someone else's practice. And so right. like, to follow the exact same steps or to build the same altar right. or join the same religion to have the same practices, yeah, it, it's, it's not your own. So it doesn't yeah. feel right. And yeah. I think so many people are turned off by this type of work because they think it has to look and feel a certain way. And it's, it doesn't feel natural or native to them. And mm -hmm. then they they veer off the path. And it's and it's hard. Yes. It, it, well, and that's the thing, like taking the time and energy to figure this out, to feel into it, to create your own practice, to find your own medicine, while also juggling a job, a 3D mm -hmm. muggle, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it, lifestyle. Like, I think that's really challenging, especially mm -hmm. because so often we don't even feel like we can have these conversations because everyone is so like the word spirituality is so loaded. And we're going to talk about a few different words that are pretty loaded in this conversation, but mm -hmm. spirituality being one of them. And we we don't want to say I'm spiritual because yeah. it, it comes with this love and light wearing free people on Instagram. It's almost like I don't mind identifying as spiritual. I just don't want follow-up questions. <laughs> like, <laughs> either because it'll take me way too long to explain or the person will ask follow-up questions as like a way to make their point or be right or like convince you to their side. You know what I mean? Yeah. That sort of energy. And you're just like, oh, like, can't, can we not? Oh, definitely going to make you do that in a minute. But the other yeah. reason I really wanted to talk to you is because you, when we first started having these conversations, you were very, I don't want to say data driven, but skeptical in the sense that you were like, mm -hmm. yeah, sure. I mean, the secret sounds cool. Well, I, I was coming out of atheism. Yeah, I was coming out of atheism, which I had been in for, let's see, since I was at least 15, with a lot of religious trauma baggage. So I was very aware that I wanted to have as many eyes open as I could, be aware of what everyone was saying and doing. So I wasn't just kind of in, in this little bubble or cult. This is the right. This is the wrong. I was trying to approach it scientifically, which is basically you try to prove yourself wrong. And so I wasn't focusing on a specific spiritual practice or religious tradition as much as I was reading about a lot of them and like their histories and how they have interwoven and the stories that we keep telling ourselves over and over again. So like fairy tales and folklore came up a lot and just these these really ancient stories, which includes Judaism, Christianity, Islam, you know, those three in the Bible. And that was hard. I, I couldn't believe I was entertaining the Bible again. 
because I was so convinced it was a political tool written and edited by people who had agendas other than the good of humanity. Not that it necessarily started like that, but that's definitely where it's ended. And so I was, I was kind of approaching it with like, I'm okay. I'll be okay with being wrong about all this stuff, but I'm not just going to follow this one person or follow this one text. I was more interested to see how they actually spoke to one another and kind of bounced off each other and, and how many times in our known history that's happened. And as I have a, I have a friend who's a librarian and an archivist, she's dipping her toes into the woo as well. And she is a really good sounding board because she was the one that told me of what we know of written human history, we only have about 10% of it right now written down of what we know of. So there's a, there's a lot of information we don't have anymore and we don't know what that is. Like you don't know what you don't know. And that was kind of my mantra going into this. I mean, you know, I completely agree with you on all of that. I just wanted to take a quick minute to introduce you because I don't think we did that. Oh, this is Mariposa yes. Stormer and she's a longtime friend of mine. She is currently in New Orleans, Louisiana, and also currently a teacher. But when I met Mariposa, she was working in hospitality. Were you teaching yoga? Or were you just an avid yogi? I was working at a yoga studio. That's right. For like I was doing that yoga studio still around. I loved that studio. Wild Lotus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Shout out to Wild Lotus Yoga Studio in New Orleans. It's phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> right. They, they have a work study thing, so I could work the front desk for a few hours and clean the studio in exchange for lessons. So that was like my way of keeping up with what I knew I needed. If I, there was any finances involved with it, it would have overwhelmed me and been too much. And honestly, I would just show up sometimes and I wouldn't even take the class after I worked the front desk, but it was just like nice to have that space carved out in my week that I wasn't ready to give up, but also couldn't always fully show up to, but it was like a nice, healing, lovely space yeah. to be that I knew I needed subconsciously and I didn't know why, I was, but I was like, I'm doing this. I'm sticking with it, you know, and it was, it was actually, it was really helpful. Well, and for people listening, if you don't know, most yoga studios have a very similar offering. So if you can't mm -hmm. afford yoga mm -hmm. classes, you can usually do a work trade. Right. But to kind of segue, you know, you mentioned a little bit, you'd been an, an atheist since you were 15, very aware of sort of the dogmatic religions. I kind of like to start these out by asking people about their origin story, but I, I give you a choice. So we can continue on the Mariposa origin story or the origin of this conversation. How would you like to answer? I mean, I feel like we should do the origin of this conversation. Okay. <laughs> how, did, how did this come to be? Because we spent three hours right. trying to condense all the origin story stuff. And I was so happy you wanted to re-record because I was just like, oh, the the tangents, the tangents we went on. Well, fun was just like, oh no, that's not that's not that's not what I wanted. Well, but you've that's had a pretty amazing. I mean, I'll, I'm going to try and wrap up your origin story, and, to, and then I'll let you take the yeah the conversation. Ahead. But born and raised in Detroit to mm -hmm. artists, activist parents who were very, very involved in the local cultural and community scene. 
your mom was a full-time DJ for the National Public Radio there. Did I get that right? When I was born, she was a DJ. And then I think she quickly like moved out of hosting a radio show when I was younger and moved more into like management. She ran music festivals. Yeah, you were going to gigs to organize protests. I mean, you were hanging out Mm -hmm. with all different types of musicians and artists from all around the world. Very much in like a world music scene as well. Your dad is also a very well-known musician, but had a handful of different occupations and kind of a classic Detroit, or at least Detroit white girl. Yeah. (laughs) Story. Whatever that. Yeah. And my parents' focus is definitely like American folk music and jazz and blues American history. So as well as like American music, as well as like world music. So it was... It's this thing that like sounds really cool now as an adult, but as a kid, it wasn't, it was barely accessible to me. Like I could barely explain it. And then if my friends went to a concert with me, it was like a folk musician (laughs) concert. You know what I mean? It was very different than what anyone was seeing on television or MTV or anything like that. But yeah, it was really rad, but it it was something that I was really self-conscious about growing up because I didn't know how to talk about it. And when I did talk about it, kids were like, what? Well, it certainly wasn't. I mean, Detroit in the you know 80s and 90s was like the rave scene and hip hop and then garage. Yeah. Something a little bit more electric than folk music. Right. Yeah. It wasn't like anything super cool at the time. And then just to kind of fast forward things, I mean, despite having dyslexia, you still managed to graduate in the top 10 of your class in high school. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. By the skin of my teeth. I'm a late bloomer. So I just didn't stop trying that last second semester, that last semester of school and it (laughs) it paid off. Well, and what I think is so interesting is now you've somehow created this dream job for yourself, but then you spent time overseas in Africa and New Zealand. I, you lived Mm -hmm. in Ireland. That wasn't in that order. <laughs> I lived in, I lived in, yeah, I lived in Senegal specifically. And then where in New West Zealand were you? The South Island. The South Island. Island. Okay. Yeah. And then in County Kerry in Ireland, I lived there for a summer and yeah, I think that's it. We definitely talked about how, you know, getting away from your home and it doesn't have to be as dramatic as Senegal, Africa, but simply getting out of mm. your own culture and upbringing and programming is a really great way to fast track your own evolution. Yeah. I think if anyone's ever been to like sleepaway summer camp, especially if you went not knowing anybody else, it can be as easy as that. You just have to be in an environment that's new to you, ideally new to other people around you as well, where you aren't defined by the stories of your family or your friends or your history because no one knows it yet. Well, and I think it was taking all of those leaps that then prepared you for the leap to New Orleans because that was basically a phone mm-hmm. call. And was it like 24 hours of consideration before you went? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I um, when I left New Zealand, it was basically because, you know, my visa ran out, was going to run out. And I was working the entire time I was living in New Zealand and like sending New Zealand dollars home to pay my monthly student loan bills. So I didn't have any savings or anything. I didn't even go to New Zealand with any savings. So 
when I came back, it was basically moving back in with my parents, suburb of Detroit, right on the northern border, Ferndale, if anyone's curious. And if you are in Detroit and you don't have a car, it really makes it difficult to get a job. I believe it was 2009. So the recession was like in full swing and no one was really hiring anyway. And I didn't really even know what I wanted to do. And I was just, oh, I was so upset and I was just really depressed. And I think I cried once a day, almost every day. And my best friend who was living in New Orleans at the time knew that I was upset. And she was in Michigan and her and her boyfriend at the time ended up breaking up during this visit to Michigan. They're both from Michigan. I think they were home for a wedding or something. And so she basically called me. She was upset and sobbing, but she was like, you know, fuck him. I'm taking the apartment in the car and like he can figure it out. And there's a place in my car and a place to stay in New Orleans. It's going to be paid a couple of months. So calm down. And so I did. And that's how I came to New Orleans. The biggest leaps I've ever taken in my life, like the biggest game changers have taken the least amount of thought, like moving to Australia, moving back from Australia, moving to LA. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't know how to make myself happy to get out of the situation. You know what I mean? Like I just felt really like everything was closing in on all sides. So anything anyone offered me, I was probably going to take. And then of course, from a really good friend that I loved and trusted. Like, yeah, we'd lived together before. She was in New Zealand with me for the first six months. So it made all the sense. And I hadn't even really thought about New Orleans. I, if you had told me I was going to live in the South, I would not have believed you <laughs> at all. That's the first time I went to New Orleans was when I was working in music in the late 90s in Boulder, Colorado. And one of our bands was playing Jazz Fest. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I was like, I will live here. <laughs> <laughs> now, how I got there is like a crazy story. But I want to get to this this conversation origin story. So Mariposa, mm -hmm. how did this conversation? Yes. I manifested this because <laughs> I was like, there's no way. We talked for three hours and it was just us talking. And it was really talking about experiences in my life that led up to my spiritual philosophy, awakening or whatever you want to call it. And I had never really said any of these stories out loud in sequential order. And I was just realizing how interconnected everything was and how long it was taking. And then I was like, oh, I, I don't think I ever even got to the point at the end. So I, <laughs> I trust Nicole completely. So whatever she wants to do is fine. But I would love it <laughs> if I could have like a second edit, if you will to kind of really hone in on what I think are the salient points. Well, yeah. And I, I just want to say what I was thinking about just doing interviews in general and what I really wanted to create with these experiences, it's this idea that spirituality, creativity, your artistry, almost synonymous, but we don't think about it like that. And sometimes when you look at your life, it, it can feel very linear while also being mm -hmm. completely haphazard. And so it was interesting in listening to you recount these different stories, which I had never heard. And Mariposa, I don't even know, how long have we been friends? I moved to New Orleans in 2013. Yeah. And I think I met you about six months after I had moved there. So 2013 or sounds about right. 2013, 2014. 
we met and were immediately best friends. Oh, yeah. We shared yeah. a, a common friend. So I was so excited to meet you. I was just like, oh, my gosh, this person's amazing. And they're living in New Orleans. Thank God. <laughs> it was so fun. Yeah, we instantly hit it off. I had no idea you were spiritual at all because like we were just talking about music and like art and stuff. We didn't ever really talk about. I mean, I guess we talked about philosophy. Well, and then you lived in Australia and I had lived in New Zealand. So we talked about like that kind of thing. That's kind of how we bonded. New Orleans is probably one of the most magical places on earth, let alone mm -hmm. that I've certainly lived in. So here's my theory about New Orleans is that like, okay. give it to me. And why people will either like love it or hate it. I think this is a city of very powerful manifestation, instant karma. And the city will truly give you the experience you deserve or that you ask for. And it's sort of that, like, be careful what you wish for mentality because people will think they want one thing. And when they get it, they don't like it mm. at all. And there's a lot of people that they'll leave the city and they don't look back and don't have nice things to say about it. And then there's people that will love the city and they carry the torch for it. And they're the cultural bearers. And there's these cultures that just get passed on, these local traditions that just get passed on generation to generation. And it's fascinating to hear like other people's experience of the city that have lived here longer than me or their whole life or shorter than me, because it'll like show you a lot of shadows. It'll show you an amazing time, but you'll, ha you'll be at the height of the most amazing party and you'll see all these amazing things. And then you're also there for the aftermath when it starts getting like less fun and more destructive. There's a lot of death in the city. Yeah. The death culture is actually something that's not hidden and it's celebrated and it's very a part of the life of the city. And I love that about it. It's one of my favorite things. We for eight years lived behind a funeral home. And that was amazing because every week we would see different funerals processions with like either Mardi Gras Indians and jazz musicians and just all sorts of beautiful music and dance and costuming. And especially on, on Saturdays and Sundays, you just wake up and open the back door and like let the music flood in and just say a little prayer, a little piece for like the person that passed and the people that were grieving. We try to be respectful of the fact that it is a sad time, but that this having a second line, which if you're not from New Orleans, a second line is a parade. It's called a second line because the first line is the musician. So the second line is the revelers traditionally. I think that's what the name came from. So just, you know, people would be sad and it would be hard and then they would have a second line and dance around the neighborhood. It was beautiful. It is beautiful. I always describe New Orleans as my mistress. I'm completely obsessed with her and I can't stop thinking about her. But when I'm inside her, it is really dangerous. And I will probably yeah. self-destruct if I stay too long. So as much as I absolutely love it, I don't know that I could ever sustain like a long-term existence there. But I have every intention of making it one of my many homes. So, Right. And that's it's so funny because I believe you and I want to honor you and all that, but I don't get it. Like, I don't. I don't feel that way. I can't, I can't relate. It's fascinating to me to talk to people about, because they do say like in New Orleans, neighborhoods are block by block. And it is, it's really, it depends on where you land and 
your neighbor and everyone's so neighborly. Like the South mm. definitely taught me how to be a polite person. Yeah. 100%. Um, the South the, and definitely a combination of living in Senegal and New Zealand and then the South. I was like, oh, right. We say hi to people and look them in the eye and are just generally kind and neighborly. And you don't have to always do something to expect something in return. It's more just a way of life as opposed to an exchange of wants and needs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but New Orleans will give that to you. It's an interesting place for sure. It's got a lot of history and that's one of my favorite parts too. Just like the amount of, especially in America, it's a young country in terms of modern, the global civilization. And there's very few places in America left that have these kind of ongoing traditions that are so much of the city, but they all have come from, because it's a port city, they've come from so many different other parts of the world as well. And also being French Canadian, it's hilarious to me, like the sheer French Canadian influence that's down here. And being from a Catholic family to the point where there's so many nuns in my family. My grandmother, if anything was going on in your life and it was hard, my grandmother would always sit you down and say, now remember, you're from a long line of strong women and nuns. <laughs> and you'd just be like, okay, grandma. And then you'd be like, and nuns? Wait. <laughs> in my mind, I always transpose nuns to lesbians because... I also think that women were like, I uh, will either marry a man or Jesus. And there were times in the history where you wouldn't necessarily want to be married. You had a different sexual preference or you didn't want kids or for whatever reason, the choices were just so limited. Well, and so, I mean, you brought your grandma up and just, as I mentioned before, your parents, definitely artists. Do you consider yourself to be an artist? I do now. But it took a lot for me to get there because I have never been a commercial artist. I've never had shows and had work displayed or participated in like artist collectives. And so because I didn't do it professionally, I was like, well, then I can't be because I don't have the accreditations. I don't have this. I don't have that. And then I sort of started to realize that just because I haven't used my artistic ability to find a profession in that doesn't, doesn't mean that I'm not an artist and I don't make things for friends or family or myself or my house and that that's okay. And being an artist and being creative looks a lot different than I actually thought in my mind. The starving artist trope or like the tortured artist trope rather or the, the sacrificing for your art, the having to have meaning, this great meaning and message behind everything. I was like, well, I'm not doing that. And so this, is, this art is not changing the world. So clearly it's not art, which is <laughs> wild. I was, I was putting it on such a pedestal, which I mean, of course I was. I was, as a kid, like I was surrounded by people. You put that people on pedestals as a kid. So it kind of just stayed there. Well, and I think it's a very American thing as well to monetize, you know, you, anything you're good at, anything yeah. that you love. It's like, well, you should sell that. And I yeah. love that. I mean, that's why I love living in Australia is it really helped me to understand art is whatever you want it to be. And living in yeah. New Orleans, it's such an accessible art market. You know, people are literally painting things on the street and then turning around and trying to sell them for five bucks. <laughs> Yeah, on their street or just their houses, their yeah. fences, their gardens. Yeah. yeah. 
New Orleans, there's just artists that are just, you know, they're successful at what they do and they're making a living and they're not grinding a nine to five. They're actually artists, but they're not able to afford a house and and family. And it's, they don't have to either be like starving or you famous, which sounds terrible. Well, what, what gave you permission or when did you notice the transition to starting and being able to consider yourself an artist? The amount of people that in my life and like, including you that will just, you know, constantly remind me that like, oh, that's really artistic or that's really creative or you did that, you, you made that, you did that. And just being like, yeah, am I part of the club yet? <laughs> you know? And, and so instead of trying to make myself fit into this kind of made up childish definition of artist that I had concocted and that society has concocted. I was like, yeah, I am. Like, I'm not trying to misrepresent myself either. I, it's definitely not always how I introduce myself or like talk about things, but it came from the people in my life and learning to accept compliments, learning to accept positive words and feedback without having to push it down or push it away or diminish it in some way. And being called an artist was just kind of part of that. So when I say, what is your work? What's your answer? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think my work is to build community. And I think my work is to nurture. That's beautiful. I'm a nurturer. And I think that's why being a teacher was such a good fit. So tell us a little bit about that, because I think that origin story is fascinating. I had been unemployed due to the pandemic and I was applying for jobs, doing the thing. And as the school year started up, all these aftercare, early education stuff came up. And at that point, I was just really applying willy-nilly. I wasn't being very particular. And I thought, well, you know, I'm from a big Catholic family and I'm very comfortable around kids. And I also made a promise to myself as a kid that I would never be an adult who didn't like kids because as a, as a kid, I would meet these adults that said they hated children to my face and not in like a mean way, just in like a kind of Gen X, I'm not having kids moody sort of way probably. But I always thought that was so stupid as a kid. I was like, you, you, you were a kid. Like no one, no one's born an adult. Like, well, and, and like you also entertain these ideas of entrepreneurship and maybe doing your own thing because you had never really, the work you were doing before was work, but it wasn't something you, I mean, it doesn't feel like how you. Right. I was a medical secretary and then I also worked so in a nonprofit field and I was, a, and I was a waitress and being a waitress really like there's a lot of artists in the service industry. And that was really cool to like see them doing their thing. And I was like, wow, I'm so completely burnt out. I can't even imagine like having a life that doesn't involve going to work and then coming home and sleeping with socializing in New Orleans activities peppered in, but I couldn't do whatever you want. And it like is productive and it leads to this bigger thing. That's wild. You're a wizard, Harry. It was very much unattainable feeling <laughs> for me. But I, you know, I was, I was definitely operating on this like bigger idiots than me kind of like live life with the confidence of a mediator over white man. So I was 
definitely like <laughs> trying to give even before I really had the language just to like give myself a little more grace about what something would look like and it's okay if it wasn't perfect or the thing I was envisioning in my head yeah I often have the issue of not being able to replicate the vision I have in my head and that would be pretty self-defeating pretty quickly previously by truly not having a clear idea of what I wanted to do for a career but knowing I I didn't necessarily want to work but I knew that I wanted to have things that filled my day and filled my time not all of it, but in ways that enhanced my life and didn't have to make me happy, but didn't drain me either. I wasn't trying to find my purpose in work. I don't think I related to that, but I felt like mm. I also had to have a, some connection to the work I did. Like I couldn't work at a random office. The office politics was something I didn't care about and understand and made everything like way more confusing for me. So you've managed to find work that is connected enough to your work, which is nurturing and community building. Right. I applied for this teaching job. I interviewed for it and got the job, but then very quickly was told, actually, it's not a permanent position. The first day of my job, Kane Ida hit. So then we weren't in school for a month. <laughs> because of course. So that was kind of like, do I have a, what's happening with when we came back from the hurricane? And then, and then I, I was able to expand that position again, because one of the teachers went on maternity leave and I was able to fill in for her classes. So it just kind of grew and grew and grew into this job thing that I have. I'm curious what your creative process is, but also as you're going through this new experience for you and this new job, if it's influenced your creative process? Hmm. My creative process is ever changing. And I've noticed that it is also kind of moving in parallel with my mental health in different ways. Not necessarily like even a value judgment of good or bad, but I had this moment or stretches of time where I was just so exhausted and stressed that I couldn't really function. And then things like Mardi Gras would happen or some other festival in the city would happen. So it was, I still had this creativity, but it was not as, it wasn't under my control. It felt more like it was happening to me, but it was still something I would lean into once I got into it because it's really fun to make art and then wear it around the city. Like it just, it just is. As I became more aware of how I wanted to move in the world and, and how I could live life in this way where I wasn't like feast or famine. It was, I wanted a little bit more day-to-day -day energy to feel like I wasn't just this blob living in my depression. The house looking fine and looking normal, but would go back home and be like, oh, I need to do this or I should do this or like have just having all this anxiety. And, and now my creative process is much more sporadic and that I don't plan it. Oh, I'm, I feel like doing this right now. And then, and, and it has less of a, a timeline to it. And it's okay if I don't finish a project or if something is left for a while. And that has created like a whole different kind of art. So I've been doing like a lot more like textiles and stuff at home that I can just pick up 
and put down that isn't getting all the paints out, but it has less of a setup process. And then also I be having just like this educational trauma bullshit and not wanting to write, like it has been coming out as like writing more often than I would have thought. And so I tend to like flit from median, I change my median and mode and operation and I don't make as many judgments about it as I used to. And then when something is done, I'll usually either hang it in my house or it's a gift for somebody else and it leaves my life. Mm, I love that. Is making art your spiritual practice, is this a part of your daily life? And if so, how do you kind of create the space for it? What is that? I mean, routine? I would say it's a part of my like weekly life. It's not a part of my daily life. I can't, I can't think of things like that. If I start making a list of like everything I need to do every day, I hundred percent, that'll break, that'll break down. I won't do it. I'll just be on the couch watching television, like being on the internet forever because I would have failed at it and I would have felt bad about it. So what we were talking about at the very beginning of like origin stories and like why I think it was so important that I was an atheist is kind of like tied into this. So we didn't go to church until I was six and I was like, mom, what's church? And then the Catholic guilt doth rained upon her and we started going to church and I started, I think in high school, I took a comparative religions class and I had a, my best friend was studying a lot of philosophy at the time. And so we were talking about that and I started really questioning any religion, including Christianity and didn't want to get confirmed in it because I just felt like I was a fraud and I didn't believe in it. And the Catholic guilt being what it is, I did like have a little combo with Jesus or God or whoever. And I was like, listen, if you can really see everything and hear everything and know everything, then you know that I'm trying my best and I want to be a good person and I want to put more good in the world than I found it. And so I was like, I'm going to continue to try to do be a good person. But I think that the, this religion thing is out of control and I don't I think I feel like I'm being lied to. And was very enamored with the sciences and learning about the universe and astrophysics and quantum physics and was very happy when death was the end that I wouldn't know or feel anything because I would be dead. And I was like, that sounds fine. Hell seems like the place to be anyway. Don't know who's in heaven, but don't know if that's going to be great. Judging by your representatives. So yeah, I kind of like, and then I just started living life to live it. When I came back around to spirituality, and I guess through yoga, yoga did provide a kind of a grounding, yoga and Buddhism, which I got from living in New Zealand, did provide like a good groundwork for all of this. But, and even like being Catholic, one of the tenets of the Catholic faith is good works. Like you can't be a good Catholic unless you are doing good works. You can't just like pay your way, theoretically, obviously, not to try to give the Catholic Church any points. You know, when you don't have this sky god telling you all the right and all the wrong of what you're doing, it frees you up. I always wanted to learn from my mistakes. I did not want to make the same mistakes again. I wanted to try to help people and be better and better myself and unlearn a lot of stuff that I knew that wasn't good or right. And... And that happens in everyday life. It happens in everyday decisions. And that's kind of what spirituality is about. It's like you can have all this spirituality and you can have this faith if we're all infinite 
God, source, creator, having a individualized experience for getting on purpose, then the point of life is to live it and to experience it. And if there is no God, and this is our only one life, then the point is still to live it and experience it. And, and that has been really valuable to me because it doesn't mean that I have to tick any boxes or like you have to do this or you, you didn't do that or this, that, and the other thing. And it's much more kind of like what we were talking about at the very beginning, just like it's, it, your path isn't going to look the same as anyone else's. And there's a lot of imposter syndrome around and it feels very icky and unnatural especially with abusive cults and religions running around to just be like, I, I can do this too. You know, it's, it's hard to buy into that. Well, but if you kind of reframe it, move it to the left a little and, and kind of say like, what if we're all saying the same thing, but like I can create the day-to-day of what this looks like for me. And some days it's just, yay, I got out of bed. I made my bed. I showered. I meditated, I fed the cats, I journaled, and I went to work. And I, that's it. That's a successful day for me, like always. I mean, that sounds like a successful day full stop for anybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, there's just, oh, we got to figure out dinner and grocery shopping and laundry and building your house, <laughs> you know, cleaning the house and yeah, yeah, cleaning the house and then like, yeah, working on projects because we're renovating. You guys are renovating the house yourself, which is what is happening in the background of this call. Yeah. yeah. Along with yeah. Super Sunday. Well, yeah. I mean, but it's New Orleans. Like, it, that city is alive. Oh, God. Can you hear it? <laughs> I would be shocked if there was a quiet corner anywhere in that entire city. Well, definitely not on Super Sunday either. For our listeners, do you want to share what Super Sunday is? Super Sunday is technically St. Joseph's Day. Everything in New Orleans usually revolves around the Catholic calendar which is a very specific day. I believe it's after Mardi Gras. And that is where the Mardi Gras Indians who have been working all year on their costumes will come out. Their different tribes will like represent and face off in these like amazing dances and like shows of pageantry. Each week it's in a different place, uptown or downtown. And each crew has like a super Sunday that they're in charge of. And so it'll be like, it's just a huge party under the highway. People are, you know, selling food and there'll be dance troops. It's a huge like car show. There'll be a lot of like drag racing and motorcycles and four wheelers. And it's a part of like the, it's a part of the black culture in New Orleans there. It's not a very, like a white space, which is also like tracks with the Mardi Gras Indians and everything. But it, it is just kind of like up it's Sunday everyone's going to be like hanging out under the highway and it'll be more or less organized depending on if there's a crew involved a Mardi Gras crew involved which is like a social agent pleasure club which means that if you're a part of a crew you pay dues if they have a parade or a ball you're a part of that and that and they're called social aid and pleasure clubs because if you were a member of one of these crews they would help you if you know your husband lost his job and your family needed food or they would pay for funerals or like it was just kind of a social safety net before we had that you know like at the turn of the century or whatever so it's I'm giving like the smallest most condensed like version of it but suffice to say there's uh, a lot of music being played two blocks from my house and a lot of cars being shown off and a lot of 
revelry. So that's what you're hearing. Well, that's New Orleans. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. There's a second line. Thank you for getting into all of this. I mean, I think it's it's so interesting to hear how someone is living, living their art, living their spirituality. And, you know, I love- a handle on my mental illness really yeah. was like the linchpin of that. Yeah. And not in a way that people thought it was okay, but in a way that it felt on the inside that I'd finally got a hang of it, which those two things happened at different times. It took me much longer to for inner acceptance. And yeah, teaching at the school and like learning and seeing how important a rhythm is for these students. And that's the thing that finally got my butt into gear to like create a morning routine of three things, which is shower, meditate, and journal. There's no amount of time that I have to do those things. And I don't do them in sequential order. Like if I have to feed the cats or, you know, I'm not trying to be a a monk at a monastery and dedicate my life to the spiritual world. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm just, just doing the best I can and just trying to remind myself that each day is going to look different. And sometimes that is the routine looks different and that's okay. (laughs) It's fucking fine. Yeah. It's fucking fine. I feel like that is the perfect closing remark. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to share, say, Um, where we go? Just that I just think you're the goddamn best. I love you so much. (laughs) I I cannot tell you how much your friendship has meant to me, especially since I started, since we started talking about all this like fun woo shit and I love you always. And I'm so, so grateful that you're part of my life. Well, I feel exactly the same about you, which is why I wanted to have this conversation and to share, uh, you know, to give people a glimpse of some of the things we get to talk about. So thank you. I, that's not what I meant, but I will, I receive it. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. I mean, I feel like I would just talk forever if I, if you were, <laughs> if I was going to answer the question you actually meant. That's what we do. We talk forever. But. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Mariposa. And another fun thing, I don't know. Usually when you listen to podcasts, it's always like, well, where can they find you? And what do you have going on? And it's like, mm-hmm. no, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. This is just a conversation. Like, I think the relatable series is what I'm going to call it since you didn't throw up. Yeah. Because it's just about yeah. doing the damn thing because you love it. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe I'll get my Instagram up and running again. It's basically like Mardi Gras pictures every year. That's it. Like, I just don't post anything anymore. <laughs> well, I, your Mardi Gras costume, oh, your costumes are fucking you. That, I mean, that is 100% of form of fine art that's, level of that's, artistry. That's very nice. I, every year. I feel like there's a lot of people in the city that are even up many levels above me so like i'm just trying to join in the revelry what cruise are you oh uh, no no cruise oh just, okay. uh just because mostly because of the like i we were taking a little like yeah step back anyway before the pandemic and then the pandemic happened it's been like a whole different yeah. thing but i mean i guess we do red beans every year and and that's always really fun but anyway yeah yeah I love you so much. Okay. Well, I'm going to say goodbye on the red beans note. I love you. Thank you so much. <laughs>